The uh, way this is going to work is more of a question time. I'm David Dimbleby. Uh, you are punters in Scunthorpe. Uh, and we're just going to have a panel discussion on a series of issues around China. Uh, I've framed out a couple of uh, topics which you know, may or may not chime with what you're thinking. Uh, so then we'll have a brief conversation on each topic here, and then I'll try and draw in maybe one or two questions from you from the floor. So let me introduce the panel. We've got a great panel, actually, um, which will cover, I hope, all bases on this uh, conversation. We have on the far right here Jonathan Fenby, who is the author of Will China Dominate the 21st Century, managing partner of T.S. Lombard, and ex-editor of the South China Morning Post, and author of many, 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 many books on, on China. I thoroughly recommend you dive into some of his work because it's influenced my book, uh, which you also, oh, that's very interesting. Thank you for mentioning it. Thank you for mentioning it. It's available in the bookshop. Uh, uh, anyway, um, if you haven't got a copy, it's, uh, it's a cracker. Um, we have next uh, Alan Hudson on my immediate left, visiting professor at Shanghai Jiao Tong University in Shanghai and director of programs in leadership and public policy at the University of Oxford. We have uh, Chun Yi Li, uh, assistant professor at the School of Politics and International Relations and the director of the Taiwan Studies Program at Nottingham. And finally, on the far left here, we have uh, Linda Yu, uh, economist, broadcaster, author. You'll have seen her on BBC many times, I'm sure. She's the fellow in economics at St. Edmund's Hall in Oxford University and the adjunct professor of economics at the London Business School. So we have everything covered from sociology to journalism to economics, the whole gamut. Um, so I'm going to start off with a question which is obviously on the lips of most people in the media in terms of the Party Congress, the 19th Party Congress. And if you read the Western press, Mao is the new, uh, <laughs> Xi Jinping is the new Mao. It's a Freudian slip. Uh, Xi Jinping is the new Mao. Um, the idea of Xi Jinping thought has now been entered into the constitution of China. Uh, Deng Xiaoping's thought was socialism with Chinese uh, characteristics. Xi Jinping's thought, as far as I can work out, is uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Um, so it's really trying to work out what that means, what, what the Party Congress means for China and for the world. So my question, Alan, <laughs> you can kick off. What's uh, going on? <laughs> That's Marvin Gaye, isn't it? <laughs> it's obviously the Congress is stage managed and um, there were no real surprises was no reduction of the standing committee, so it's still seven. The key thing, and we still don't know if it's absolutely the case, the key thing is that nobody was brought into the leadership in their 50s. So the break with tradition is that nobody's being groomed to take over in five years' time. Um, that's often interpreted as being Xi wanting it for life. I don't think it really matters. I don't think that's the central question. I think the most important element uh, is that we have to go back um, 10 years um, for what has become the most important aspect of China's changing position in the world and Chinese policy, which is the impact of the global financial crisis. Because it was already happening behind the scenes in the sense that the Chinese economy was growing and the traditional strategy was to keep still and not rock the boat and let the economy just do the talking, a lack of political intervention, uh, and everything would get better. But that became implausible and impossible after the financial crisis because um, uh, China was forced to act in a much more uh, dynamic way, both economically and because of the failure or the growing failure of global institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, that it had to try and realign the world in the sense of uh, reflecting the economic power of China in the political sphere. And that's, that's the dominant trend. So there's greater internationalization of Chinese policy. 
which we'll come on to talk about in various aspects, for example, once one built one road. But on the other hand, there's still the need to, uh, um, to solve domestic issues. Um, the first thing is it also stimulated a much more rapid movement towards um, RMB convertibility, although that's still um, slower than you might have expected two or three years ago. Uh, but probably more crucially is trying to maintain social stability at home, and that was a key element of the, of the party strat of the, the Congress. And the two elements I'd uh, draw attention to in that regard are the increase in domestic consumption uh, to compensate for the uh, decline of the export markets, um, which, and, uh, because more and more goods will have to be bought by Chinese people. And as one factor in that, is, and yeah, there is a sort of let's do it for the Chinese people aspect, but there's also the aspect of uh, increasing the ability to spend because Chinese people save a lot because of the inadequacies of the social uh, services and social security. So there's been a real upsurge and upgrading uh, attempt uh, at social amelioration uh, through state control in order partly to stimulate domestic spending. So I think that will be continuing. Um, so can I, can I quickly yeah. ask you on that? Do you think, do you buy into this idea that you know, one thing that maintains social stability within China is the consumer satisfaction or the, or the growing economy? If were that, you know, everyone's watching that, were that to go down, GDP to fall, then suddenly there would be this uh, you know, turmoil within China? Well, I don't buy, necessarily buy into it. I think the Chinese government buys into it. It considers it's a necessity to maintain its position along with, um, again, um, the reinvigoration of Confucianism as a new ideology because nobody believes in the other one. Uh, and, um, and also Han nationalism, which yeah. we'll discuss a little bit later. So there's a three-pronged strategy for social stability. Um, and you know, there is, you know, the fact is most Chinese public officials, um, uh, you know, they want to do a good job for the Chinese people. They're not, you know, yeah. people talk about Chinese corruption, but it's, it's not as high on the corruption list as many people suspect. And uh, government is, is, is considerably more efficient than m many other places in the world. I'd also say, and this I think would associate with Xi's more powerful position, is the last presidency of who was regarded as a, a, a loss of time, a waste of time, that they didn't move fast enough. And when I talk to sort of relatively senior people, they're saying that this is their last chance. I mean, they've got to do something, they've got to consolidate, and they've got to be more effective in the next five years, otherwise there will be problems. Okay. Well, Whether that's true or not is another matter. Yeah. All right, who wants to pick up? Should I pick yeah, up? Yeah, go on. Um, I think um, economically, we should probably expect more of the same. Um, it's quite clear that Xi Jinping is powerful, as uh, Alan has just described. Um, and just a quick thought on his succession. In China, it's possible to be in power but not in office. That might be the opposite of some other leaders we can think of. <laughs> um, and uh, Deng Xiaoping, for instance, was in power um, well into the 90s, um, having launched um, reforms in 79, even though he wasn't officially in post um, through that period, throughout the entire period. Um, so I think on the economics, um, we have a few dates now to bear in mind. Xi Jinping is clearly looking to cement his economic legacy, um, as well as some of the other ones that we'll come to on geopolitics. But on economics, he said by 2050, China would need to be a country with much stronger institutional <coughs> foundations. Um, by 2035, he expects China, he's aiming for China to become a prosperous or more prosperous society. And by 2020, and this is a goal which has already been achieved, 
China will become uh, pretty much a middle, near upper middle income country, having doubled average incomes from 2010. And these are all milestones towards what um, he has been working uh, on in his first five-year term, and presumably onwards, is to make China um, one of the very few countries to overcome the middle-income country trap. So only 13 countries have become rich um, in the post-war period since World War II. And no, none of them are nearly the size of China. But if he could help China, lead China into this new era where China is one of the few countries that becomes prosperous, in other words, joining the ranks of, of uh, the rich countries in the world, Britain, America, Germany, uh, Japan, Korea, then that would certainly um, cement his legacy um, in line with how we attribute to Deng Xiaoping um, China's momentous change since adopting market-oriented reforms and moving away from central planning in 79. If Xi Jinping were able to do this, then he would cement his place in China's economic history as the person who, against the odds, and it's high odds, um, it's very difficult to do, which is make China a prosperous country um, in the 21st century. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, Linda. I, I take up from your um, economic perspective in a sense that, yes, I do see that um, in Xi's era, it's more of a certain of his power, especially after the 19th Congress. And as Linda just mentioned, that the number really looks prosper in a longer term. But actually, I also wanted to reflect on China's actual stability in a sense of their inequality inside of China. For instance, after 2010, there were numerous big scales of the labor strikes in China. And that actually creates governments a great anxiety in many, many ways. Uh, that also reflects she, in a sense, now wants to control more of the social stability, um, just wants to make things go smooth to make sure China would lead the economic drive, especially now uh, she promotes so much after 2013, October, of the Belt and Road initi Initiative. It's not just called One Belt, One Road, because there are multiple belts and multiple roads. So if China is leading and has this ambition uh, to lead as a global uh, geographically, uh, economically um, control, not controller, but provider of the facility of infrastructure of the regional bank, AIIB, the most important thing for China now, apart from the power assertion of Xi, is to make sure the economic growth is stable and sustainable which I, I also I have some doubts and concern because just by looking at domestic China's combined but unequal uh, development, that actually made me feel to be wary whether China would be able to, as she wants to promote in 2050, to work as a middle-income country because there are some worrying signs which probably we can discuss further later. And I also want to make a note about after 19 Congress in terms of Hong Kong and Taiwan's situation. As many of us know that Hong Kong, Taiwan. We'll come uh, to that in a minute. In later, yes, yeah. okay. I mean, the, the Congress, I think, in a sense, it was a continuum. It was just a confirmation of what we knew. 
I mean, I seem to have been using this phrase, she is the new Mao for the last three years, and so on. It's, it's good to see, you know, that seems to come about. Although he's not actually the new Mao, he's very different from Mao uh, in lots of ways. He's much more like an old emperor. This is a, a rebirth of the imperial system, the East Han or, or the Hai Ching, uh, or whatever you like, with everything going to the emperor at the top and socialist modernization as the new mandate of heaven. Uh, and in a sense, it was just a confirmation, that the, the, the Congress was a confirmation, uh, so it was old in that sense. But it's new in the sense that I think um, she is trying to turn the clock back uh, quite uh, fast uh, in various ways, notably uh, in economic management, where the Communist Party took over two years ago and reversed the Deng Xiaoping process of devolving government, economic management, social management, and so on, to the government, which is now clearly very much a uh, second runner uh, to the Communist Party. And you can see that through various nominations that are come up in the Politburo and uh, in the Central Committee uh, from the Congress. And uh, so on that particular case, we are in an interesting case, an interesting position, which is really a test case here. Uh, which is one of the things, you know, one that's theoretically talked about for a long time, that we have the recognition of the need for economic evolution, economic modernization in China. You can't stick with the old model, and that is quite clear. But the way this is being done under Xi is through the big state, through reinforcing the state, through building up national champions. If you take, for instance, uh, just to take uh, two examples at the moment, the enormous growth of uh, the internet, uh, Alibaba, the bat, as they're called, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent there. Yeah, they are hugely successful, but they are operating within a ring set by the, the Communist Party and the state, which is keeping out any kind of foreign uh, competition for them. So you've got this strange mixture of private within a state uh, ring, if you like, and how workable that is. Uh, you take excess capacity, which obviously has been a huge problem in China. When I was there a, a few weeks ago talking to a lot of people, the way excess capacity is being dealt with is through uh, discipline-style uh, inspection teams, which arrive and just say, close this, close this, do this, do that, and so on, and through bargains within between the state uh, and private enterprise, which are basically getting uh, private companies to pay for the redundancy of SOEs. So there are a lot of almost laboratory things, I think, that are going to go on in the next five years as to how this big, overwhelming Xi Jinping state, which began with the politics and has now gone into the economy, will function in terms of delivering economic uh, and social modernization and dealing with all the other problems which we know China has. Okay, that's a reasonable kind of frame of reference, uh, maybe a bit in depth in some parts, so we can we can loosen up on the panel after this question. But uh, what I'd like to do, and I know this is going to be pr problematic for the camera crew, but is there anybody who has any kind of comments or questions on this particular issue? We're going to take it as a as a question time format. So if you do have any outstanding thoughts about what you've even read in the Western press about China, if you're not a China expert, that's okay. But any any comments? If China wants to move middle income and into higher income, that will probably mean moving into um, like service, the service sector a lot more than it currently is. And uh, because of the race to the bottom, manufacturing will probably move to Vietnam, Bangladesh and India. And so I'm just wondering, is China, just by becoming a higher income country, going to uh, be a threat to Britain and America because they'll be able to um, have 
services at a much lower price and just uh, outcompete hi current higher income countries. You were discussing China's economic prosperity and its growing economy, but as Black Monday showed when it happened in 2015, that China's economic structure was um, sort of not working, and also that they have lied a lot about their economic data and hidden a lot. So how do, how do any change in uh, China's economy, how do we trust the new data that will come out uh, about it, and will this, if they keep down the same road on, on the same economic structure, would that lead to an inevitable um, crash and decline. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. When I was in China, um, the th two things that struck me most was the fact that there was a, uh, uh, they were getting richer and richer, but only if, if they didn't interfere with the politics. And the second thing was that everybody said there were three Chinas, three different languages. Do you imagine that that will affect anything. For instance, do you think China may become a federation to make it stable? Or do you think it can, it's huge that it could even stay together as it is? That's the, the question of the year, yes, uh, or the century. Well, the first thing that you said to take the last question is true. I mean, since 19, June 4th, 1989, the bargain has been basically the Communist Party, we look after politics and we'll make you richer so long as you keep out of politics. And that has become more and more accentuated under Xi Jinping, where any, it's not just any kind of dissent where you like to be locked up and if you're a human rights lawyer is taken away, tortured, who knows what, and so on and so on. I mean, human rights have gone way down under Xi Jinping, but it's also any kind, any any grouping organization that is seen as having an independent existence which could affect politics uh, is in the firing line. I mean, the great example being a, a man, as Xi Jinping was launching the anti-corruption campaign five years ago, somebody who's been campaigning for years for officials to be made to declare their assets, he was locked up. Uh, for several years in jail because he was doing it independently of the Communist Party. And that was uh, competition and dangerous uh, subversion. So, you know, that, that bargain stays. And the question is really for me whether the second generation middle class, the first generation middle class was happy enough to go along with the status quo, was very conservative status quo. I mean, if, if you're a middle class family in Shanghai, foreign holidays, private health care, private education, jobs, a car, the last thing you want is 700 million poor people to get the vote and uh, influence politics and so on. So that was so. But their children are, but what I think, I mean, it's terribly difficult, broad brush and others can say, more concerned now about what I call the quality of life issues. That's to say the environment, water quality, food safety, accountability, lack of the rule of law, uh, the imposition of the rule of arbitrary rule of law by the party and so on and so on and how long they will go on for that uh, is a question and that is why I'm, I'm convinced Xi Jinping in his three and a half hour speech at the Congress talked about he mentioned the environment more often than the economy and so on and he sees that I mean he's a, they're savvy politicians and they see this absolutely uh, so I think you'll get that and that as for China breaking up I remember before I went to Hong Kong in 1995 uh, uh, the junior minister from the government then uh, took me to lunch and said, China's about to fragment. 
uh, Shanghai will break off and this, that and the other rubbish. Uh, and it always has been rubbish. So long as the Communist Party remains in power, and that's certainly for as long as I'm going to be alive, uh, China will remain a uni unitary state with a lot, it is true, with a lot of federal characteristics to it. But those, again, Xi Jinping has been trying to bring in, reducing the regionalism and the power of regional barons. Um, on the question about Chinese data, since we're all plugging books, um, my latest book on China by Oxford University Press, China's Growth, goes into it in, in great detail. Um, in a nutshell, um, Chinese macro data is unreliable. So I go through literally you know, thousands of studies using Chinese micro-level data, household-level data, firm-level data. And that's much more reliable in terms of giving you trends than what you'll be able to pick up in terms of believing macro statistics down to some, some decimal point. Um, and I think that is actually one of the challenges in China in terms of changing its growth strategy, because you often need good data in order to ascertain the two most important drivers of growth to get China to become prosperous, which is uh, technological progress and human capital. Both of these things you need to be able to have some degree of, of measurement of. And of course, um, we've been talking about China trying to reach this goal. China's economy will slow. Um, as countries grow rich, their growth rates always slow as they approach the technology frontier. So the example I can give is that if China grows at 4%, um, there are many people in the city who would be very, very sad. Um, but if America were to grow at 4%, that is all pre President Trump will be tweeting about. And so as countries, please don't tweet that. <laughs> um, so um, as, country, as China's economy slows, it's going to be harder to grow fast enough to become rich. Um, and the quality of growth matters a lot more for the reasons that Jonathan has mentioned. Um, and just on the economic question that was posed here, China is already today, um, it has a structure which is much more similar to um, advanced economies. Services is a bigger part of GDP, national output, than manufacturing. So even though China is the world's biggest manufacturer, um, services accounts for more than half of GDP. And in that sense, it would be similar to the United States, for instance, which is the world's second biggest manufacturer. China overtook it three years ago. Um, but services is a much bigger part of the economy. So in that sense, a China which is developing a services sector, um, as well as maintaining manufacturing strength. So in this sense, it's closer to Germany and Japan, which have maintained manufacturing um, as a sector very, very strongly, despite services being bigger. I think China is already a competitor um, on some things. And how effective it is in terms of becoming uh, how um, effective it is as a competitor will depend on the quality of what it's producing in the services sector, in higher manufacturing, and they're aiming to do that. By 2025, they plan to make their big manufacturing firms global champions. So I'll give you the, the best way you can gauge how effective this is. If you find yourself going into a store buying a smartphone that's made from China, a Chinese uh, company versus, say, um, Apple or Samsung, 
um, then I think that'll be one indication that China has become competitive. Because when you're competing in higher manufacturing and services, it's not really price, it's actually quality and uh, brand. And that's where I think is going to be one of the litmus tests. Of the biggest five mobile phone makers in the world, the biggest is Samsung, the next one is Apple, the next three are all Chinese, and those three mm. keep changing. And that's how quickly the Chinese um, market, these producers, are innovating and competing with each other. Um, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It depends on all of you whether you would choose to buy it. I think that would be a sign. And obviously, the issue of quality in China is a very important one for the general public, isn't it? It hasn't been a most trustworthy uh, <coughs> provider of goods. Um, Jenny, do you want to comment on yes. pick anything up? Um, I pick first of the three China. Actually, it's not just three China. There are many, many Chinas yeah, within China. China. <laughs> if you go to Xinjiang, there are. There are 13 people in Xinjiang, and it's, it's all under so-called One China. One thing I would like to also follow up what Jonathan said is, um, you mentioned about the next generation, uh, or current generation of the Chinese youth think about whether it's under the One China's uh, direction. I say it is, because all the, the young generation are I consider myself as a young generation among them anyway. Uh, of when I converse with my friends, and uh, they would always say it's only one China. It's never three Chinas or many, many Chinas. So it is not in their understanding that China will be a federate, federation or be like United States. It would not, at least to now, the current situation is not considerable. If this is a society wants, then China will remain with a very tight control of any separation of any part of territory. That's the thing. I also come back to the production part. Linda mentioned about uh, China made 2025. Actually, that's uh, a learning process of the Germans' industrial 4.0. That is to to make the production as a lean production, as a most of uh, a production manufacturing to be replaced by robots. Okay, so China has been a world manufacturing, uh, the world factory of manufacturing sector. Now China wants to get into the industrial upgrading to aim as a, a lean production with being, um, production being all replaced by robots. That's very good and also that is a way that any country, developing country, should aim to. That is a transition process. But the question comes, the massive number of Chinese workers, whether they will be able to actually to be transformed into the service sectors. I think this would be actually a great challenge to the government in many, many ways. Um, it is a long process for the government to adjust, especially that China does not really have a comprehensive social welfare system. So this is uh, the worrying side that I mentioned to you, to you earlier in that case. And also, in terms of competition with the Western powers, America, EU, UK, I think China is not a competitor, but it's a partner in a sense of uh, providing more of the service, as Linda mentioned, of all the Chinese make mobiles or computers. So in a way, China is very in China's sense of a win-win situation. It's not 
a zero-sum game. China is in a way that rising globally economically by providing service, not as quality better, but price-wise better. <laughs> and in a sense, you are engaged with China and you realize, ah, it's so difficult to break through this bone because of many other reasons. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, uh, well, just briefly on the, more, the geopolitical question uh, contained in the idea of the UK and USA being threatened by China. Um, different scale, um, don't even think of UK in the same breath. The most important thing for the UK, and the city is salivating over the possibility of becoming the centre for IRMB convertibility, which will reinvigorate the city of London. And if it doesn't go to London, they'll all, you know, they'll all cry and cry and cry. So there's no, you know. Now, if you look at it, and this is too broad, but I'm not arguing or suggesting that there could be a conflict, but the only time, the only historical precedent for a hegemonic power to be overtaken by another hegemonic power is when America took over from Britain. And it took approximately 40 years between 1890s and the, uh, the, uh, the calling in of the land lease debt in 1945. But it was all, and there was, but the difference is profound because America is by no means the same as Britain was in terms of its decline. So America will continue to be much more powerful, both militarily, economically, and indeed in soft and cultural power. I often make the point when people ask me this, Chinese people ask me about this, and I say, look, China will not be as important as America until they get something as good as rock and roll. You know, just you know, the, the cultural influence of the United States in the world. Um, on the other hand, uh, China, it, it might be useful, don't, don't push it too far, to think of China's movement in the, in the sense that America moved after the First World War as becoming a regional power rather than a global power. And I would imagine already uh, most trade in Southeast Asia, maybe corrected on this, is going to be denominated in RMB, just as the dollar began uh, dominated uh, trade with uh, Latin America and South America in the 1920s. So if you were, the Chinese will be looking at that, and, and they'll also be looking at their uh, further development. One small point, and I don't want to repeat anything else, is that it's true, as, as Linda says, that, the, that uh, most Chinese cities have a structure look, which looks very similar to the West. One thing, and I don't know this exactly, but my intuition is that when you look at the service sector, much of it is low grade, uh, catering, restaurants, and things like that. And the key development that China must have, and it's finding it a little bit difficult, is to have the logistics, the insurance, the high skills, which is why Hong Kong is so important. Because uh, you still can't do business quite like that in Shanghai, uh, compared with, uh, uh, and that's also an emphasis of the government in terms of when they emphasize the rule of law. Because can you trust the contract? Yeah? yeah. And that, that's crucial for Chinese development. Uh, and so it's, and yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, business, lots of industry already going into Vietnam and Southeast Asia, which is also the regional strategy. Yeah. I just say on, on the services, sorry. <coughs> since, rightly, it's been mentioned quite a lot, a lot of it is very low grade. I mean, you know, the classic case when there was a downturn in construction in Beijing a couple of years ago, there were an awful lot of delivery jobs to be done. It's a, it's a kind of, you know, delivery uh, economy which has developed very largely. And also it's a domestic economy. I mean, China hasn't yet sold any services abroad. It may sell smartphones and so on, but it still needs business services actually to import, except that that is politically uh, quite, quite sensitive at the moment. I think, I don't know whether we've got on to the international uh, 
Simon, I was going to make a couple I, of words. I was also going to add that you know, it's like one of those things in China when you know you can have these marvelous things by phone, you can you can pay debts by by WeChat, you can all have all these apps that. But if you want to buy a phone and register a phone or get your gas reinstalled or something like that, you have to walk miles and go to see a little man in a shop and yeah. fill in paperwork. Uh, whether that's an employability strat strategy, I don't know. But there's a, there's a mismatch between this high-tech, high-end thing over here and then this very low-grade service sector over here. So you know, they'll, they'll, it, I'm sure it'll get there soon. But, uh, but it does, it does move on. That, you know, politically, still at the moment, given the security, uh, Paranoia, what you're afraid. Yeah. Uh, we use that. That is going to remain. I mean, it was very interesting uh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when there were the big capital outflows at the beginning of last year, the government could, which uh, in the past you've been able to go into the bank and say, take up my quota of dollars, I'm just going to transfer my money like that, and they do it with a couple of keystrokes. Suddenly, you went into banks and you had to fill up forms in great detail, which then got lost and uh, on purpose. Uh, and so that was a means for the People's Bank of China to stop the outflows. And it's very useful not to let technology run away with itself. Yeah, 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 very true. Okay, well, um, I will move on then on the economic side. But that's also a geopolitical argument which we're, we started to talk about, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, the One Belt, One Road, whichever you want to call it, uh, which is this kind of mega idea of China linking to the world. Yes, it's kind of replaying some Marco Polo-esque uh, fantasy from the past. Uh, it's building a, uh, the, the, the belt is the actual land-based connection, the railway, and the, and the road, ironically, is the sea-based connection. Uh, tying in China, so you can now have a train which goes from uh, eastern China all the way through to South London, uh, through to Madrid, through to Frankfurt. So uh, there is this kind of new kind of connectivity, but with that comes new kind of tensions, the, the tensions between India and China fairly recently. So, so uh, it's an economic conversation, but it's also a, a political, social conversation. So who wants to try to explain what's, what's going on? Yeah, please, please. Framework. Um, the, I think the, the Belt and Road Initiative is an extension of China's essential expansion of its global influence. We've heard Chong Yi mention already the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is the regional bank China leads um, that invests in Asia. And the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this okay. or over, um, is in a sense an outward push of infrastructure investment for six through 65 countries, essentially covering down from the coast of East Africa, Kenya, where I was recently, all the way up, obviously, through um, Central Asia, places like Kazakhstan, and going into Europe. And the scale of this investment is considerable. It's up to $800 billion in the next five years, with another $100 billion or perhaps a bit more in what's called the New Silk Road Fund. So we're talking nearly a trillion dollars to be invested um, across uh, these regions over the next few years. And I've spoken to companies in countries which are affected or on the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And I think their overwhelming feeling is there are opportunities here, especially if you look at the underinvestment in infrastructure in places like Africa as well as Central Asia. But they're very worried about <coughs> China being a new America and not quite sure what that means. But and let me just finish with giving you a sense of the scale of the infrastructure gap in the world. Um, right now, two and a half trillion dollars is invested every year in infrastructure. 
the UN estimates we need 3.3 trillion a year. So that means we need a Belt and Road Initiative every year from now until 2030 if there's in order to try and meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, which is to eradicate extreme poverty and a host of other aims intended to boost development. So I think that gives you a sense as to why these countries um, are looking at this investment and thinking we could use ports and roads. And I've seen the rail extensions myself in Africa. Um, but at the same time, just this wariness. Um, in fact, one of them said to me, um, somebody in the Middle East said to me, um, will China be worse than America in the region? So, that question I'll pass on. <laughs> Just to say that, as I understand it, most of the Millennium Development Goals on calorific, calorific intake, on re reduction of poverty, uh, the global goals have been met because of China's... The uh, Millennium Development Goals, um, which is the half global poverty by 2015, yeah. Yeah. was met 10 years, five years early in 2010. Um, that's having global poverty from 1990 levels. That was met mostly because of China. So in other words, global poverty was over a third of the world population lived on less than $1.90 a day, adjusted for what a dollar buys in your country. That poverty rate was halved to 18% by 2010, mostly due to China. A billion people have been lifted out of poverty around the world. And the new Sustainable Development Goals sees the end of extreme poverty by 2030. And it, they can't count on China for that. But what they need is to have the ability of countries to be able to provide for themselves, and that does involve better agriculture, infrastructure investment to boost industrialization. All of these things require funding in places like Africa, South Asia, that just don't have that kind of financing. Okay, can I bring you on? Yeah. What I'm gonna say is probably a bit one-sided, but it's just to, to, to try and get a different take on it, is quite often, and this is not only uh, true of China, it's quite often uh, foreign policy is dictated by domestic problems and domestic issues. And the way I would then look at quite a lot of the geopolitical developments uh, in relationship to China is uh, they're expressions of the China dream. They're expressions of uh, Xi's uh, conversation with the Chinese people that the 100 years or 100 years plus of degradation is over and that China will now take uh, its, its rightful position in the world. I mean, let's remember that the Chinese economy was the biggest in the world to the middle of the 18th century, and Beijing was the biggest city, et cetera, et cetera. So I would just emphasize that, um, that it's, it, it's a, a conversation uh, with the Chinese people about ch uh, China's reality and um, uh, position in the world. Secondly, um, it, well, two points which are related. It, it, it's and I'm not sure how true this is and whether it would work, is that quite a lot of the Chinese discussion about move, uh, going across the Central Asian uh, landmass is to establish a heartland uh, sphere of influence, which is in a sense, maybe it's wishful thinking, but it's certainly an emphasis because most of global power uh, for the last few hundred years has firstly been the Atlantic trade, and then it becomes the Pacific Rim trade. Uh, and the idea is, well, maybe China bec can become more of a, of a, a powerhouse through its uh, geographical position. Uh, and that means going westwards. It means opening up the west, which means uh, raising the living standards of the western provinces, which is a domestic problem. Um, emphasis on Chengdu and Sichuan. 
Uh, but also, and then again, you know, I'm not, hopefully this doesn't sound apologetic, is if you look at it from the Chinese point of view, they perceive themselves as being encircled. Uh, the only halfway reliable ally is Pakistan. Um, that's not that reliable. And so if you're Chinese and you look Japan across the East China Sea, you look at India to the south, and you have your own um, problems with, uh, um, you know, uh, with um, dislike of you in other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, so you know, there is an attempt to reconfigure uh, the geopolitical framework. And of course, the obvious tool for that is economic power, which then is translated into political influence. Yeah, okay. So creating a new narrative. A new narrative, yeah, yeah, yeah. Describe it, yeah. I think the difference with the past, and you know, if we go back to the yeah. post-1945 world in particular, is that China operates by bilateral agreements. It doesn't like multinational, multilateral agreements. It likes to be able to control the, 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 the arrangement. And that's what you see with the One Belt, One Road, which is a series of bilateral, uh, I mean, some may come under the, the Silk Road project or the AIIB and so on, but they are essentially bilateral projects, government to government. And not, unlike, say, the Marshall Plan at the late 40s, you're not actually building up an economic uh, collaboration <laughs> among a number of a lot of nations out of that, and you're also not building up alliances at all. So yes, obviously China is going to is has already become hugely much more important in the world, and will continue to do so. But it's I think it's a different kind, and it's a self-limiting kind of expansion compared with what we were used to in the past. Is this part of what you're describing? Part of this non-intervention in the rights of foreign countries? Why, it's, why well, the well non-intervention non uh, non has its limits sometimes. No, because the, the story yeah. of Sri Lanka is a very telling one, isn't it, where, they, yeah. where they've invested heavily in the yeah. ports and in airports, and then actually Sri Lanka doesn't have the facilities or the money to pay for it, and now sure. become incredibly in debt. Yeah. Now China is offering to buy the ports at a cheaper rate yeah. back yeah. from them, yeah. so yes, they yeah. have this... Uh, base. They've also started this uh, Djibouti, Djibouti uh, military base, base yes. in Africa yeah. for the first yeah. time, expanding yeah. outwards, while at the same time having this notional idea of non-intervention. So non because of course they don't want anybody to intervene in or say anything about Tibet or Xinjiang, we've seen here. Okay. <laughs> I'll just make a very small point of that, which is a bit anecdotal. Just a few years ago, it was the time of the uh, uh, Libya uh, conflict. I was asked to do a, 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 a speech in, in, in Beijing on what were the lessons of British imperialism's role in Africa. And I couldn't for the life of me work out why initially, but then, yeah. of course, obviously, it's how do you protect your foreign investment? Yeah. Uh, I couldn't think of any other, any other thing positive to say other than, well, you don't leave, yeah? Because you know, otherwise you lose, all your you lose all your networks and clients. You know, a few people might have to die. Yes. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> well, I just want to point out some um, probably also, again, very points that if we are talking about investment, then we're talking about China says win-win strategy. Then we have to look into how do China invest in all, all those countries. They brought their own people, their workers to the countries to develop rather than employ the local people. So whether that investment really would benefit the local economies, we actually hold some skeptical views in that sense. Apart from the investment, well, still on the BRI's concept in that sense, in geograph geographically, 
it also has a lot of worries from other parts of the world. For instance, if you are talking about the uh, Xinjiang uh, going through the Central Asia countries, the high-speed railway train, then you have the big brother, Russia, is looking at you and thinking that, are you trying to take away of my backyard of the Central Asia countries? If you are talking about the maritime belts, then you have a big, messy war, that is uh, South China Sea disputes. Then whether China can exert its own economic power in a sense that to trade off the country's uh, consensus of the South China Sea and a lot of complaints from Vietnam, Philippines, uh, I would say that it is a big challenge for China. And domestically, Xinjiang, Chongqing maybe is a, not that much of an issue, but Xinjiang actually is a very sensitive area in terms of uh, ethnic conflicts. It's very high pressure, right? Uh, well, the government control is very high, still there. And uh, I would think that it is a lot of problem that China would have to face in terms of initiating the BRI. Not to mention that it relies so much of the sustainability of China's economic growth. So we actually, well, at least I myself have a rather wary notes in terms of the BRI. Yeah. I mean, a small, tiny. Can I take a question? Is it going to be a sentence? It's on this. It's on this topic. Yes. Um, so I mentioned I've been. I've just returned from Kenya. I'm presenting a BBC documentary on Chinese investments impact in Kenya. And what struck me was. If the country is a bit it, like um, like Kenya is able to negotiate with the Chinese government over the kind of projects that's being done, then a couple of things happen. One is the Chinese have built for them the very first modern highway called the Tika Road. China is building the um, uh, which links Nairobi to Tika, which is the industrial heartland. They're extending the railway. Um, their employment split is 70-30, so 30% Chinese, 70% locals. What they don't do is to help train the locals in terms of upgrading them into management. And I think there is a real issue with how China invests in places like Africa, where even a country like Kenya, which is the most developed in East Africa, isn't, they're not able to get terms which are as favorable as what China extracted when it took in foreign investment in the 80s and 90s, where foreign companies that invested had to hire local Chinese and make management 50-50 so that the Chinese could learn from uh, the foreign investors. And so what struck me was um, the Maasai people that I met near the National Park, they were very keen for the jobs because there were no such jobs until the Chinese investment came. And they were desperate for work, for working for $5 a day on railroads, <coughs> which is hard work. But on the other hand, it was quite clear to me that China's investment in these countries are on terms which are not nearly as good as what China extracted for itself, which helped it to grow and to upgrade its industry and uh, develop over the last three decades. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So yeah. I'll just say, isn't the point of the Belt and Road Initiative, rather than calling it Belt and Road, because BRI is what the Chinese call it now, isn't the point about it to get the rest of the world to accept China's investment in the rest of the world, right? That's the main point about it. Thank you very much. Um, following on from, from that point, it, the question is about awareness in the West of economic and geopolitical connections. Um, Djibouti was mentioned. Now, of course, the Chinese Navy hasn't stopped at Djibouti. It's gone into the Mediterranean and then the Baltic. Have you ever heard non-US Western economists 
ever make any reference to the fact that, without it coming up from one of yourselves, that China has naval and air facilities at Djibouti. Thank you. Hello. You've been talking about the geopolitical situation, but you haven't mentioned that, that you know, China is quite ascendant and America is, is, um, is actually declining in power. And, and the threat of war between them, even inadvertent, might, might be there because of the America resisting its, uh, you know, its decline. You know, the PP, Chinese PPI is above, is above America's right now. And so I, I'm wondering if, if you've thought about, about this, this change of power structure in the world and, it, and if, if it might actually devolve into war. Uh, two very quick questions. Firstly, um, what is the significance of Australasia right now for China? So namely Australia and New Zealand. And secondly, I was recently in Ethiopia and traveling in a rural area where an enormous textile industry is being put up by, um, as an in a Chinese investment. And a remark that was made by a government representative to me was that um, they understand it as uh, under the Paris Climate Agreement um, in order for China to reach its targets under the climate agreement, it is actually taking some of its industry offshore so that um, it can reach its domestic targets. I just want to know if there's any truth to that. Trump is going to visit China next month, and in the media, there is a referral to G2. What are the implications for Southeast Asia and Europe in particular? Um, the focus on domestic economy um, was the focus, obviously, and I just wanted to understand the appetite to become the hegemon from the people within China. Do they actually care? Is it actually something that, uh, that Chinese people want? Is there any interest in kind of transitioning Ooh. into that role? Very quickly, uh, you made a throwaway comment about rock and roll, but how important is soft power in China's rise, either regionally or internationally? Oh, it's very serious, the comment on rock and roll. <laughs> and it's crap Chinese music. I, I read a book, or rather I, I started a book and then sort of read a precy of a book that came out a few years ago called World on Fire. I don't know how well received it was in academic circles, but broadly it concerned itself with uh, the spread of ethnic minorities within developing nations who had benefited from the introduction of neoliberalism and democracy and took an advantage of the opportunities that that made for business and in particular, it did focus, the, the author herself was, was ethnic Chinese, and it focused on the ethnic Chinese in the Philippines, in Myanmar, and in Indonesia as well, I think, in particular. And the degree to which they were quite small uh, in terms of demographics, less than 5% quite often, but controlled a lot of the private property and the businesses and so on. And I wonder, in particular, with regard to China, to, to, what, that, to what extent that has been factored in to the strategy which China might be now currently considering in terms of its global takeover. Very good. Okay, we have lots of questions. I'm sorry for the other people in the audience. Uh, we're going to try and do one more topic. <laughs> uh, so that means, can we have short and sharp? Australia and New Zealand are important to China, particularly Australia, because it is a huge source of raw materials. China is no longer growing at the pace it used to be, but it is still, as we've discussed, um, upgrading its industry. Um, and also, um, China remains a net energy importer. So raw materials, things that it needs for consumption, because you remember, 
Um, you can think of it in terms of uh, pollution statistics, right? Developing countries, 80% of pollution comes from production, 20% from consumption. In developed countries, it's the reverse. So the needs of especially soft commodities is actually rising because of China. And it used to be in the past decade, it was the hard commodities. So Australia will suffer a bit of a dip, but it's still very important. A third of Australia's exports go to China. Um, and China's leadership in terms of stepping in where the TPP has begun to um, uh, fall back because Trump has pulled out of it, TPP 11, which is led by Japan, China's posed an alternative called the free trade area of the Asia Pacific which would include Australasia as well as um, the Pacific Rim countries. So we'll see where that goes relative to other free trade agreements being discussed. And then quickly in Ethiopia, I think there is some truth to China is not competitive on low-end manufacturing anymore. So there is going to be, um, we talked about it earlier, um, production which moves uh, offshore. And in Ethiopia, I think they have invested a great deal in low-end industry, which is not actually all that common in terms of how they do their investment. I'm sure it helps with pollution targets. Um, and, my, um, and I've heard that the Chinese workers in Ethiopia are also becoming a bit more of an emigrant community, which is not the case for most of the Belt and Road um, investment. So they're beginning to settle a bit. So we'll see. Maybe um, when in Kenya, I heard this phrase, chickens, which are uh, Chinese Kenyans. Um, which are beginning to emerge. So I don't know what the equivalent would be for Ethiopians um, as the Chinese settled, but as you know, um, Indians are a massive community in, in, uh, in East Africa, so we could be seeing the new wave of, of this. Um, but anyways, it's not, some of the assimilation is because some of it is problematic um, in terms of the usual cultural clashes and language and what have you, but, but we'll see. Okay, thank you very much. We, I'm sorry to make it quite short, but please. Yeah, short. So um, just Two points that um, China's exporting, well, the, the factories move abroad in terms of meet the environmental regulation. Actually, I think that's more also concerned about the labor price now in China actually increased a lot, especially after 2008 labor contract law established. So those low value-added factories and high pollution company uh, factories move abroad, not just because to meet the environmental regulation, but also actually is economic needs that China now being cannot afford just to do the low-value-added manufacturing jobs. And another point is also at uh, echo to the Americans' power decline. I think that uh, it's more about Americans look inwards rather than look abroad, especially Trump, as Linda mentioned, that decided to withdraw from the TPP. So China's RCEPs, that's also another regional Trade, free trade agreement with more of leading the regional economy in that sense. So I, I don't think it's an American power's decline, but America now decide to look inward rather than abroad. Yeah, I just say also on the moving of <coughs> capacity, one belt, one road. There is an element in this of moving excess capacity from inside China, outside, particularly into Central Asia, which is pretty ironic because the first Chinese modern steel mill was dismantled in Duisburg in Germany and shipped and put together in China. And now there's talk of doing the same thing into, as you know, into Central Asia uh, 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 and so on. Uh, the G2 issue, I don't think there is a G2. I mean, there's G2, if you like. These are the two biggest economies uh, in the world. But um, the fact is that Trump has no China, coherent China policy at all. He hasn't even got somebody trying to draw up a China policy. He's apparently got 16 people working on it, but uh, none of them know anything about China, uh, or hardly any of them. <coughs> and China's interest is doesn't want to get involved, as we've seen over North Korea, in any deal with the United States 
which strengthens the US presence in East Asia, because the long-time Chinese aim is to be number one in your own backyard, uh, which is understandably historically. The trouble is we're not back in the Qing days because you have a country called uh, Japan, which is there. Just very briefly on soft power, China spent an awful lot of money uh, on uh, soft power in all forms, and uh, in terms of return on investment, it has been minimal uh, or hardly anything, I think, because China is more we are much more aware of China, that's a good thing, Chinese culture, Chinese everything else and so on. But to go to what Alan was saying, yes, we had the Voice of America, yes, we had the cultural, uh, the, whatever it was on, cultural freedom, the CIA and so on and so on. But actually the spread of American soft power was because people liked listening to rock and roll and wearing blue jeans and behaving in a certain way. And even Simon de Beauvoir, that well-known pro-American, saying the GIs were you know, the new world in the 1940s. And you don't get that with China. We had a lot of predictions uh, eight, 10 years ago that we'd all start learning Mandarin and that everybody uh, in the West would start behaving in Chinese manner. But as you know, if you go to a mid-sized Chinese city on a Saturday night, it is much more Western than if you went to Bradford or Milwaukee. Uh, <laughs> it's Chinese. Curry's on, isn't it? The famous graffiti in Afghanistan, apocryphal or not, is Yankee, go home and take me with you. <laughs> That's not going to happen to China for the indefinite future. And don't... Um, don't write America off in economically. I mean, the, the, the most, the, the key thing in China, the Chinese development, and they're very conscious of this, is that, that their strength in the economy is through, is through scale, not through innovation. And so America is still by far a more innovative economy, much more dynamic economy in, in key sectors. And even in population terms, you know, because of migration into America, America will still be a young population as China ages. Uh, so it's much more dynamic in, in terms of its population. And I, just to make the, the, those points in relationship to, uh, to cultural um, power and, and I, um, it's a difficult one to call. I don't, you know, it's, um, I think the Chinese leadership and the cadre are well aware of the problems in Western societies the fact of the lack of cohesion in Western societies. And just as, again, anecdotally, when I'm in Shanghai in 10 days' time, I've been asked to do a speech to the National Party School in Shanghai on, on the culture wars in the West, yeah? Uh, because they think, yes, that's, a, that's an element of decline, whereas we have a vision. This is back to the China dream. Um, finally, the anecdote is, again, in Shanghai, this time at the Shanghai Party School, I listened to somebody who used to be the head of Marxist-Leninist thought in the Party School, who's now the head of Confucian thought, plus a change, uh, make the point that whereas China had a dream for the whole nation, if you listen to Martin Luther King's speech, it was, I have a dream, bourgeois individualism. I made the point in my response that it was a, it was a 250,000 people listened to the speech and it was a promissory note, as, Le, as, as Luther King said, about the promise to the whole of the American people. But there is a, so there is a sense, I, I don't know on the street, but there is a cadre and there's the university trained professional people who do have a sense of the national mission of China, which you don't have inside any Western society at, uh, at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that came up very clearly from Xi Jinping's, and that's why I say yeah. the kind of imperial approach, which is part of we bring everything together under the sun of heaven, uh, who's yeah. him. And as for inquiring in the, the Western uh, weaknesses or splits. It was very interesting that Wang Kishan, the outgoing head of the uh, Discipline Commission, invited Steve Bannon 
uh, to yeah, Beijing yeah. A, couple, a few weeks ago to just say, hey, what are these new neo-nationalists all about? Yeah. Well, the richest man in China said to sorry, me that his son, who publishes his lavish lifestyle on China's uh, equivalent of Twitter, and, you know, and I kind of said, you know, what do you make of that? And he said, he was educated <laughs> abroad. Yeah. <laughs> right, very quickly, we don't, have, we, don't have enough, we don't have enough time to do everything that we need to do, so I'm going to throw an open question, a ridiculous question, because in the, uh, in the Congress, in, in uh, Xi Jinping's speech, uh, he talked about Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, and, in, and in many ways, if you were an international relations expert five years ago, Taiwan was the flashpoint for world war, and yet uh, Xi Jinping said, uh, we will never allow any person, any organization, any political party at any time in any form to separate any piece of Chinese territory from China. Uh, so that was a warning to Taiwan. In Hong Kong's terms, he was a little bit more conciliatory in some ways uh, with the new bridge and what have you. So you have that going on, and then also, the, since people have mentioned it, North Korea and America's relationship and how China fits into that geopolitical conflict. So it's all on the table, all up for grabs as to what you think about what the hell is going on in geopolitical terms with these issues. Who wants to Well, East Asia is the most dangerous place in the world. And it has been for the last four or five years and so on, mainly because of North Korea, also because of the unresolved China-Japan uh, spat, which is there. China seems to have won in the South China Sea, but there's always possibilities. We have Vietnam mentioned uh, a moment ago, and above all, the presence of the United States, which isn't, isn't going to go away, I think. Uh, so is North Korea a red herring? No, no, North Korea is, is, has the potential to you know, to, to, to set the fuse going, I think, by, by going too far. Kim doesn't want to attack Guam. He'd be mad. He's not mad. Uh, he wouldn't want to. But it, the danger is that everything gets pressed a, a, a little too far. Hong Kong is just going to get more and more, I think, tense uh, between ever since uh, 82 years ago. The State Council said basically, yes, well, you could have freedoms in Hong Kong, but it's on sufferance from us, and you better behave. Uh, or else we may withdraw them. And you've got a new generation of pro-democracy activists. Uh, I mean, I used to be, when I was editor of the South China Morning Post, the Martin Lee and co. would say, let's have lunch at the Hong Kong Club. No, it's Joshua Wong saying, see you on the barricades. You know, it's the, the, the generation has changed completely there. Taiwan, I mean, I just hope that Taiwan goes on with its present clouded status. <laughs> I feel that like I have to expect. say something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, with no doubt that for any of the Chinese president would say there's no separation of Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau, and, and be more fearsome on Taiwan because Taiwan is not part of China, hopefully never. Uh, <laughs> never really like I, I really never was anyway. So, but that's, that's not my point. Point is, um, it is also uh, in a sense that it's with higher pressure of Chinese governments, you could see that in the, um, Hong Kong in, and in Taiwan in 2014, umbrella move, movement and sunflower movement is more of creating of these kind of anti-China sentiments. So it is a, a very ironic situation of that China never really, China is clever in many ways in doing business with the world and as we just discussed a BRI scheme, but China really never gets the hearts and minds of the Hong Kong people and Taiwanese people in that sense. Um, and also that is the case that in, in a sense of uh, getting more of the people-to-people's contact, which is also what uh, Xi Jinping says in the BRI, that it creates more of a connection with people-to-people. -people. It does have a connection in cross uh, 
Taiwan streets with Taiwanese people, but create more of Taiwanese people feel like we are not of China, we are not part of China. So this, this has to be recognized in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that I personally do hope that uh, the Chinese uh, governing power, which recognize that this is not by just by using the force of threatening, mm -hmm. which is always a strategy of the Chinese government to send a message to people across the trail, that small island, those people that they are part of the Chinese territory, which it just creates the anti-Chinese sentiment. And this is not working in buying people's hearts and minds across the trade. All right, thank you. Hello. Again, some years ago, I was chairing a lecture, and it was, the lecture was actually on um, political reform and devolution in the UK uh, through a Chinese audience. And apropos of nothing, because it hadn't been mentioned, the first question was, why do the Western powers use the issue of human rights to intervene in the sovereign affairs of other countries? Uh, which is a certain <coughs> legitimate point. Um, the, the point being is that China in this context is um, the most Treaty of Westphalian power in the world, the, the establishment of sovereign state 1648, end of the Thirty Years' War. But of course, for China, anything that's once been Chinese is always Chinese. So there is, that's the tension. Uh, so again, um, again, in discussions with other with people in, in China, fairly senior, um, they make the point that they will never, ever make a concession in relationship to Taiwan. But the problem, the problem that, and again, it goes back to some of the earlier discussions, is that their view was, in the past, that just as their economy would carry them into a different position in the world, the, the integration of the Chinese and the Taiwanese economy would have the same result. Of course, that all ends with the destabilization of political and economic relationships in Southeast Asia and the rest of the world. So that becomes more problematic, just as it would be with China's relationship with South Korea, in terms of you know, how long the Chinese say, can, will South Korea be economically related to China, but politically related to the United States? So that's another source of instability. And to be slightly devil's advocate on the question of Hong Kong, it, although I think, I mean, it's a very serious question, is that if you're in Hong Kong, they're obsessed about the relationship with China and Beijing. I can't imagine it's the number one priority if you're in Beijing looking at Hong Kong. So you have an entirely disproportionate uh, set of concerns. It's like us with Brexit. Yeah. And, um, you know, and again, at the time, the Chinese handled the last wave of demonstrations pretty well just by, by doing nothing and waiting for it to because it had no internal dynamic. I mean, I was discussing with people in Hong Kong, and I said, if I was one of the Hong Kong protesters, I'd be immediately sending people out to all the areas to galvanize popular support and discuss with people, not sit, in, sit on your ass you know, for the whole time. Because there's no real political dynamic in Hong Kong. It's a, it's a very modern uh, political uh, formation. It, it isn't a, a movement which will generate popular and democratic support. It's very static. And the Chinese can probably handle that. And tapping into the Occupy, Passivity yeah, really exactly so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Linda, I think a, a couple of things. I think one is um, it's the, the the one country, two systems, which is what Hong Kong is under for 50 years since the handover in 1997 was designed for Taiwan. And indeed, the idea, um, as Ellen has said, is that when when they're economically tied together, that politically it would bring. Um, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, closer into the Chinese fold. But I think what's happened is actually the reverse in many ways. Economically, they're extremely tied. Um, Taiwan to uh, 
mainland China, Hong Kong to mainland China, and yet politically, um, they have operated under systems which are dramatically different than what you have in China. So I think this means that this framework, um, which has been in operation now um, over the last almost, well, time goes quickly, 20 years, um, I think is, is, is a model that is going to have to be looked at again. And that, and that I think, brings me to sort of the, um, the thought that in, in China's case, aside from this wanting closer integration, generally in the region, what they would prefer is the status quo vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Um, there's always a lot of, um, I think, annoyance uh, on the part of other countries as to why China doesn't do more vis-a-vis uh, -vis North Korea. And I think the status quo is generally what they would uh, prefer because that, that is in many ways consistent with their policy of non-interference. These are very difficult issues to resolve. And I think that's probably why there is a sense, I think, of frustration in terms of what's happening in some of these hotspots, especially um, the ones that have been mentioned. And then I guess the final thing is the elephant in the room, and he's already been mentioned a few times, <laughs> is what does America do? Um, in the region, um, in in this in the East Asia region, at, well, Asia, ac well, across Asia, certainly other parts of the world, but across Asia, America is the key player. Its alliance with Taiwan, America's alliance with South Korea, which is being mentioned, America's role in the region is absolutely huge. It's been a counterbalance to China um, since the end of World War II, and so what. Uh, Donald Trump's America First policy. He's got a 10-day tour coming up in Asia that's been mentioned. What he does, I think, will have a great amount of uh, bearing on how a lot of this geopolitical um, tensions uh, play out. Grant, um, Grant, good. We'll have to leave it there. Right. I'm going to do a ridiculous uh, Qing emperor um, demand on you. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to pay me we'll anything. But no. So uh, <laughs> I, can, I can take two questions which can key the framework, and then I'm going to ask you to answer them in one minute as a roundup. Uh, yes. Uh, so we've already, people are leaving in contempt and in American protest against the Chinese authorities. Uh, in relation to Hong Kong, Many fear the death of democracy in the state, and I personally know many friends that have currently fled Hong Kong because of this fear. In relation, then, to democracy in China as a whole, is there a chance that they will ever move away from the single-party system and move towards a multi-party democracy, or is the fear of um, a repeat of the collapse of the Soviet Union holding them back and making them stay to the single-party system? China's spoken quite a bit about uh, environmental issues and doing ecosystem cities and tackling climate change. Is it going to be a force on a global scale in terms of addressing world climate and uh, ecological problems? There's actually a very good book on that. <laughs> I think you should answer that. Yes. No time for that. Okay. It's uh, you guys, I mean, you can take up on those issues, whether you want to call that soft power again, I don't really know. Uh, but any issues that are still outstanding or you want to address? Who wants to kick off? Well, democracy, no. Uh, I think not as long as I'm here, which may not be all that longer. Um, no, I mean, the system, I, I don't see that there is pressure, as I mentioned earlier on, I think, particularly on second generation urban middle class, 
that there is political pressure and people want better quality of life, lots of other things, and so on and so on. But that doesn't translate into, and it's one of the great mistakes that everybody's made in the West from Bill Clinton onwards, when Clinton was saying, you know, make China richer and they'll become more like us, was the quote he used. Mm-hmm. Um, that, isn't, that was never going to happen, for reasons I said earlier on about the middle class, <coughs> and so on. And I don't see it happening at the moment because whatever you think of it, the Communist Party in China has basically delivered uh, for most Chinese people. I don't particularly, myself, like the way it's gone about it, and I think it's running itself uh, into a brick wall in the next uh, five, ten so years. So very quick, as a we'll turn around on the question. So are we the gonna, so, no. I know, but I'm going to ask you for a bit more. So are we going to become more like them? No. We're going the other way. We're becoming more fragmented. They're becoming more unified. Yeah, okay. Um, more social questions. I think, yeah. uh, just quickly on COP21, I think um, China's now become a middle-income country where to uh, retain the, essentially, the social stability, which is, the whole, which is always the aim of their um, policies. They need to improve their environmental um, impact, output, all of these things. And so on COP21, they signed up, they hadn't signed up to the Kyoto Protocol, and they've done it at a time when the U.S. is stepping back. And so I think I'm hopeful that, plus the fact that they invest heavily in renewables, China's invested more renewables over the past decade than all other countries put together, is that this is a sign that they are moving um, in this direction. But it's because of domestic stability issues rather than anything else. And they do like um, green tech. And so, um, so I would say I hope so, because one of the most disappointing things in China is how polluted the air and the water is. You can have growth and development, but at what cost, I think? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. Come here. Finish. Democracy, no. Yeah, just to um, also, <laughs> the reason is actually, I asked my friends, Chinese friends, that, oh, why don't you like so, um, my Chinese friend actually asked me, why in Taiwan you have so much noises? and you actually are living in chaotic status. We actually are more, have one voice, one kind of television. We don't have so many different channels, but we have whatever the news information we need. And look, actually, China's high-speed railways from Shanghai to Beijing built probably within one year. And look, from London to Birmingham, your high-speed railway is being talk about that in 10 years and never been realized. So what's the goodness of a democracy? We are fine. This is probably probably anecdotal, but the, the majority of the answer. Yeah. Thank you. I, I concur with the points about democracy. You have to subdivide it. The, the tra- if you read all the documents coming out of the Congress and all the official documents, they talk about democracy all the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But what they're talking about, or in their definition, is not representative democracy not participatory democracy, they call it consultative mm-hmm. democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they do pay a hell of a lot of attention to you know, what they call netizens, you know, sensitivity to the rising middle class expressed through the internet. And they're, you know, so they're not oblivious to public opinion, it's just a question of, but um, it's a question of adapting to it rather than anything else. On, um, totally, um, on the environmental question, uh, you know, it's a bit like talking about the weather. It's that, uh, I go to Shanghai and I say, oh, the air's really bad here, and, you know, really bad. And obviously, it's much worse in Beijing, but it's really bad. And I say, look, I was brought up in southeast London uh, in, the, in the 60s. We used to be sent home at half past two in the afternoon in November because of the smog. Yeah? And chi- China will move forward much more rapidly than the 150 years it took the British Industrial Revolution. Uh, uh, and it will be. Um, 
uh, much cleaner, and that will be partly to do with the fact that they'll move the dirty industries away from the cities, but it will also be to do with the investment, although quite a lot of the investment is wasted because it still goes to SOEs rather than to innovative yes. smaller companies, but there still is the high R&D component. And remember that the mantra for the last 10 years, which has been translated from, you know, from the 10th, 11th into the 12th five-year plan and, and in different ways, is economic efficiency, social justice, the social welfare system, and environmental protection. And so there is, a, uh, as Austin points out, there is a, almost a, a real obsession with it. And it will be economically beneficial. It will take them up uh, the value chain. And so it's both an economic and an environmental question.